He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day, Saturday, July 3, 2021. I've got a special show, Double Dose of Craig's Lawyer's Lounge on this first show of our second season. We launched on Independence Day last year with Dave Gunder's tremendous song, Fourth of July. We will play that again, but the primary song from our troubadour, Set the Tone. And what a tone we set this week. Late Friday night, Spencer Coven, Florida attorney, represented Chloe Gibbons, a victim of Bill Cosby in California. Did he get justice? He reacted to the Cosby release on a legal technicality. Bruce Castor, that slimy former Montgomery County prosecutor who gave a verbal deal of a lifetime to Bill Cosby, the same Schmageggy who represented Donald Trump in the last impeachment, impeachment number two. He thought he won when really he is a horrible lawyer. He cost so many women so much. But what about Spencer's client? You will find out in the first installment of Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, followed by Abe Wagner. Abe Wagner, who is world-renowned as a motivational speaker, a life coach, he is still on top of his game, even though he's in the back half of his 80s. My God, you will hear it. He's amazing. You can find him at abewagner.com. This is his first podcast, and you will understand how great he is. John McGuire was doing his first podcast, I do believe. He's a tax attorney. We're talking taxes because... The Trump Organization, they're in trouble for cheating on their taxes. How common is that? I think paying taxes is a patriotic duty. And on Independence Day, July the 4th, we should take pride in paying our fair share. I got to thinking about patriotism and the 4th of July for our July 3 show. And I found out that George M. Cohan who was the protagonist in the movie Yankee Doodle Dandy by Jimmy Cagney, portraying the showman, the vaudevillian. I wondered about George M. Cohan. Who was this guy? I presumed he was Jewish because his name Cohan, but it turned out I was wrong. Introduced to you a chap who's just as well known and loved down in the cactus country as he is right here in the gay white way that he helped to make famous. He's the fellow who immortalized Yankee Doodle synchronized the land of the free and the home of the brave and set old glory waving to 4-4 time. Author, composer, playwright, star of the screen stage and radio, artist and musician. Well, you put them all together, add a dance, a dash of dancing feet, strike up the band, set off the fireworks, give three cheers, and you just about got a picture of Uncle Sam's favorite nephew, one of the grandest troopers in the world, George M. Cohan. I love that song, Yankee Doodle Dandy. I must have heard it as a kid because 
I just remember it. Yankee Doodle Dandy. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle do or die. A real live nephew of my Uncle Sam. Born on the 4th of July. And then I heard the song over there. And until I did a little research on George M. Cohan, I did not realize he wrote that clever World War I song over there. I'm not old enough for World War I or World War II, but I heard those songs and I thought, what an interesting life. And I looked it up and George M. Cohan wrote over there. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, the drums drum coming everywhere. So prepare, say a prayer, send the word, send the word to beware. We'll be over, we're coming over, and we won't come back till it's over, over there. He had a prolific, long-lasting career. He died in 1942. James Cagney is remembered for winning an Oscar for portraying him in Yankee Doodle Dandy. And it turns out that he wasn't born on the 4th of July. George M. Cohan, actually born on the 3rd of July. I hope you enjoyed this July 3rd episode It's all for you. Let's start with Craig's Lawyer's Lounge and Spencer Coven. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. It's great to welcome back to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, famous Florida attorney Spencer Coven. Spencer, you had quite a week. I met you because you represent one of Bill Cosby's victims. In fact, I think you might represent more than that. But tell everybody about your week and what happened with Bill Cosby. Thank you, Craig. It's good to talk to you, and I appreciate you having me on again. So, yes, you're right. My client, uh, Chloe Goins, was one of the only ones to be able to file suit against uh, Bill Cosby back when he was initially charged. We were able to thankfully resolve that matter. Um, In addition to Bill Cosby, I've represented several victims of Jeffrey Epstein and thankfully resolved those cases before he passed away in jail, untimely demise, obviously. Um, But yeah, this week was rather surprising to us Uh, as advocates on behalf of victims. You know, it it was uh, kind of sad to see what happened with the courts and the fact that Bill Cosby got off on a technicality. Yeah, but kind of great for your clients. Timing is everything. Way to go, Spencer. How long ago did you resolve the matter for your client, Chloe, who I believe he molested, sexually assaulted in L.A. at the Playboy Club? Do I have that right? That's correct. So our case occurred back a number of years ago, three, four years ago, and it occurred at the Playboy Mansion. Um, It had occurred, uh, obviously, while she was there, for an event that had happened and we filed suit shortly thereafter. It was during the prosecution and ultimately it resolved while he was behind bars just shortly after he was convicted. Did you give him a discount because he was incarcerated? Is it confidential? (laughs) Can you talk about it? 
Uh, the settlement is confidential. Um, and all I can really say is that the parties resolved it uh, to everyone's satisfaction. So at the end of the day, it did get resolved to my client's satisfaction and obviously Mr. Cosby's satisfaction. Um, and no, there was no discount at all. In fact, we were on the uh, verge of taking his deposition when the case resolved. While he was in custody. Correct. I was getting ready to take uh, his deposition behind bars. And he still has assets. We see he went home to his estate. And how much money do you think Cosby still has? Oh, I have no doubt that he has multi-millions of dollars stashed away over the years. I know that some of his deals got uh, um, obviously terminated as a result of what happened and him putting, uh, being put behind bars. But at the end of the day, I think he he still has a lot of money that he can live off of. Wow. What about other victims? I think about the Colorado victims who I've known, interviewed. Beth Ferrier, I think she had Gloria Allred as an attorney. Heidi Thomas, a music teacher in Douglas County. Barbara Bowman, who lives in Arizona now, but grew up yeah. in Golden and Aurora. Cosby used to breeze through Denver and do his nasty business with young women, and he had certain people who helped them. You know the pattern. Sounds familiar, oh, yeah. but I don't think these women got the civil justice that your client, Chloe, had. It's a doggone shame. Maybe with Colorado's new laws and some new statutes of limitations in a lot of states, do you think he's going to face further civil litigation? Well, I certainly hope so. I know that I've been in touch with Miss Allred's team, and they're going to continue prosecuting their case that they have out of in California. That involved a minor, so the statute of limitations was much longer out there because of that. But I'm hoping that um, other states decide to pass those laws to be able to allow victims of someone like Cosby or anyone else, frankly, of sexual abuse to be able to prosecute their cases um, for much longer periods of time. You know, the issue really here is what we call the statute of limitations, which is the limited time that someone can bring a claim. I know it. There are some criminal laws changing. I'm not sure that it can be applied ex post facto, but I was a prosecutor for 16 years. And I always said that there's a lot of damage that can be done by an inept or rogue prosecutor. And to me, that got proved in Philadelphia with this Bozo attorney, what's his name, Bruce? What's it? I'll I'll look. I it remember. Up. Yeah, he, no, I know. You know, he represented about. Donald Trump in impeachment. Trump, he just brings right. Bruce shame. Caster. What's his name? Bruce Castor. Bruce Castor. I try to forget yep. about that guy because he embarrasses the profession, and through his ineptitude, so many women got raped without consequence. Yeah. it's horrible. Very true. Very true. It's sad. It's it's truly sad what he ultimately entered into. And, you know, it's my hope that more people take a look at what he did uh, with a very skeptical eye and, and hopefully in the future that similar deals won't be entered into. But here's the thing about you, Spencer Coven. Tell us about Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. Yeah. That's still coming up. And yeah. uh, fascinating how you are in the middle of everything, famous Florida attorney. Well, you know, it's interesting how things always happen in Florida. So obviously, you know, when uh, the events occurred down here in Florida and Palm Beach, 
a lot of the young victims came to, to me to help them out in that circumstance, and I was able to thankfully help them. Our cases resolved many years back, but when the fund got reopened after his death, uh, a lot of the young girls came back to my uh, representation so that I could help work uh, their claims through the fund to get them additional compensation, which thankfully they were able to do. Gosh, again, timing is everything. What about Ghislaine Maxwell? Are you following that? Do you have any civil cases against her? I don't have any pending civil cases against her, but obviously because my clients uh, are uh, involved in these matters, they always come to me to ask for updates and find out what's going on. So we're intimately involved in what's going on with the prosecution. And our hope is that the trial goes forward, which is now set for November of this year. On December 31st, 2015, I was doing a broadcast and I got to interview Roger Stone. And I was contemplating Donald Trump and the ascendancy that he was experiencing. And it seemed to me that I should educate myself not only about Donald Trump, but his famous attorney, Roy Cohn. And I asked Roger Stone, what could you tell me about Roy Cohn? Did you know him? He said, no, him. I was there when we all got introduced. It was at Reagan headquarters. And I said, what what book or movie or something I could consume would educate me well about Roy Cohn? And he said, "Uh, watch Citizen Cohn starring James Woods. And I watched it and I thought it was a great movie, but it didn't portray Roy Cohn in a flattering way. I bring this up, Spencer, because I'd like to know about Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. And there are so many books. There are so many mm-hmm. shows on. Which one would you tell me to watch? Well, there's two currently out. There's one that's a series on Netflix regarding Jeffrey Epstein called Filthy Rich. Um, and then there's another now that just got released, I believe, on Peacock. And it's The Shadow of Ghislaine Maxwell, I believe is what it's called, or The Shadow of Jeffrey Epstein one or the other, but it's a special on Galen. And what's really interesting, and I, and I think your listeners should uh, be aware of, is that, you know, at the end of the day, this could have never occurred absent uh, the complicit uh, and direct help of Galen Maxwell. I mean, she was a key player in what was occurring. And without her, none of this could have happened with Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, I don't think there's any way that a young girl uh, 14, 15 years old, succumbs to the wiles of a 50-plus-year-old man, absent uh, an elegant older woman becoming involved and enticing them into the organization. So she definitely played a key role. So the special on Glenn Maxwell, I think, is definitely something that should be watched by all your listeners. And give it away. She's a billionaire's daughter. Uh, what was she getting out of it? Well, it's interesting, and the special gets into that, but, you know, she lost her father um, in an apparent suicide uh, slash, you know, murder, which is very interesting because it they draw the parallel between her life and the death of her father and Jeffrey Epstein and his death in jail and all of the, you know, uh, conspiracies regarding his potential death behind bars. But most importantly, she really needed somebody who was a controlling figure back at that time and somebody with money and funds that could support her lifestyle. And Jeffrey Epstein just kind of came into the picture at the right time and right place. So she needed him. And how did Jeff Epstein get that rich and tie it up with that guy from Victoria's Secret? I mean, 
That's that's a good question, and and the special gets into some of those issues. But you know, obviously, working at Bear Stearns, he was connected to some of the right people. But again, Glenn Maxwell was a benefit to him because she was able to introduce him to some very wealthy and notable people throughout the world, including Prince Andrew, as well as leaders and captains in industry that she uh, socialized with back when she was younger and her father was alive. Fascinating. Do you anticipate a trial and will there be lots of new revelations? I've never seen a trial where you don't learn a lot of new stuff. Well, I do. Um, I, I I think there's one of two things. One, it will be if there is a trial, it will be amazing. And you're going to hear a whole bunch of things that nobody ever knew of. Um, and it will it will be amazing. But alternatively, you know, 90 percent of the time these cases resolve before a trial. And that'll mean some kind of a plea deal where she agrees to um, some kind of jail time. Fascinating. What happens next? Grudge Report right now. Cosby plans comedy tour. I mean, that's got a second year client. I've been in touch with some of his Colorado victims. They're stunned. They're saddened. What do you make of Mr. Cosby and his future? Will he be in courts all the time? Do you think he'll ever be on stage? And well, a major network, would they be right to interview the guy? He is a historic figure. Well, I have no doubt that he'll get some press and he'll get some work. Um, you know, the industry has a very short memory. If you look at some of the people in the industry like Woody Allen and, you know, others who have continued to get work despite what they've done in the past, um, I think Bill Cosby will be the same. And at now, the end but of the day, that, can I stop you for a second? Yeah. And I didn't even watch that Farrell v. Allen because... It saddens me, those sorts of allegations, but he was never convicted in court. And I know true. enough about Cosby that he is guilty. But I, I put it to you, Spencer, you know more about this than I do. And you're down in Florida, which is kind of a different environment. Is pedophilia rampant? Is there uh, well, a big uh, group I, of I people who it, engage in this stuff? I certainly would hope. I certainly would hope that it's not rampant. But I think that it does exist in society. And unfortunately, you know, uh, it is only now coming to light the, the number of victims that are out there that have been abused. And, you know, if you look at recent statistics, one in four women have been sexually molested by the time they turned age 18. And that's a dramatic statistic, because at the end of the day, when you're sitting in a room with four women, one of them was probably sexually molested when they were younger. And that's just atrocious. And we need to do a better job as you know, as a society, of protecting our children. And what percentage of that one out of four do you think was subjected to it as part of a pedophilia ring? Well, I don't know. I don't honestly know, and I wouldn't want to speculate on that. I just think that at the end of the day, we need we need to do a much better job at protecting them. I don't know either. That's an interesting question, and I always appreciate your accessibility and. That's because you, you're you the kind of lawyer somebody would want to hire because you do things in a timely fashion. We're talking about great timing. Isn't that a big part of being a successful attorney, knowing when to resolve a case, knowing when to do this or that? Timing is. is everything. It is. In our business, timing is everything. And, you know, accessibility is important, but the most important thing is timing. And, 
you know, at the end of the day, I try to be there as best I can for my clients and, and hopefully get the best result I possibly can. Can you give us a reaction from your client, Chloe? Does she say, oh, my God, Spencer, thank God for your She's, timing? Or what is yeah, her reaction I mean, she this was, week? She was happy to be resolved with her case. Obviously, she's happy looking back on it that, you know, she was able to be done with that matter when it occurred. And she got a very, you know, good result that she was happy with. But at the end of the day, she's disgusted that they let him free. Well, there I'll say his name again, Bruce Cutler. I try to forget you because you're an embarrassment and you say you won the impeachment hearing, even though most people voted against you. And where Spencer and I practice, that means you lose. But Bruce Castor and now Bill Cosby is saying, I'm an innocent man and this court opinion proves it when you and I know it condemns Bruce Castor. It doesn't exonerate Bill Cosby. No. Bill Cosby was convicted. He was convicted by a jury of his peers. The court merely said that because of a verbal agreement that Bruce Castor entered into that he couldn't be prosecuted. Right. And does that mean that the law is an ass or is this, you know what? Prosecutors have a lot of power. Be careful who you elect. You and I know that in the system. Look at Jeffrey Epstein's prosecutor. Hell, I interviewed him at the White House When a prosecutor makes bad judgments, a lot of people pay the price, including the poor women who are victims of serial sex offenders. That's true. That's true. Spencer, yeah, you've been been tremendous. Caught you late on a Friday night, and I wish you nothing but the best. Thanks for coming back into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, and I'll see you around campus, okay? All right. Sounds good. Take care. All right. Bye now. Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end-of-life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but you and I have something in common. Uh, We both pride ourselves on being good attorneys, and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer. Do you want to go through a few of these right now, and we'll keep going on future talks? What about number one, behave yourself? What does that mean to you? I mean, there's a whole slew of things that you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly. You know, whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, there's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board. They need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information. Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way, too. If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe 
on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound, and then leave a positive review. More than anything, push the podcast to your friends. Let them listen. Thank you. I am excited about this interview, and I'll tell you why. I admire this guy, and I just found out it is his first podcast experience. This guy is funny. He's opinionated. You know, anybody can have an opinion, but not everybody can get paid for their opinion. Abe Wagner has gotten paid. He realized that people would pay for his opinion, and I'm not paying you, but my gosh, what an honor, what a privilege to have you in studio for your first ever uh, appearance. I, I I can't tell you how excited I am. Well, thank you. I'm excited that you're excited. That's great. Right. It's a good time to be excited because I'm telling you, Abe Wagner, that uh, I've always admired you. Partially, my parents spoke highly of you. I knew you ran the JCC when I was a kid. And then I found out a lot more about you, and it was a couple years ago when people actually gathered that I found you at... Uh, the synagogue giving uh, your shtick a comedy affair, and you were sensational, hilarious. Do you remember that? Was that the one at the BMH? It might have been at a B- BMH or at Temple Sinai. Sinai, yeah. I did it at right. Sinai, too. Well, you do so many shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And and it was sensational, and I thought, I want to grow up and be like this guy. <laughs> and I was already pretty old. But tell everybody about your background where you grew up, and uh, and explain that, uh, how you got to be such a success. Well, it's an interesting story. How much time do we have for me to pat myself on the back? We have two and a half hours because it's a podcast. Well, I was born in Denver. I lived in a neighborhood that was predominantly, when I was born there, uh, predominantly Hispanic. Uh, and my dad died when I was 12, and I lived in a children's home. The children's home was called the National Home for Jewish Children. And it was a home for kids whose parents originally were at, uh, had uh, tuberculosis and were at the Jewish Consumption Relief Society. Later on, it became an asthmatic treatment center and eventually combined with National Jewish Hospital. Long before that, I left there, won a scholarship to Denver University at age 18, uh, got a bachelor's degree, won another— Now, wait scholar- a second. How do you win a scholarship to DU? Well, I was I graduated pretty high in my class at North High School. That's how that happened. Must have been very impressive because you didn't have parents going to bat for you. Did it? How did you know what to do to get that scholarship? Well, I just for some reason decided it's important to to learn as best I can. I won a second scholarship and got a master's degree in social work at Denver University, and. Uh, I started working for Jewish Community Center when I was 17. Interesting story, the assistant director of the home was a man by the name of Dr. Kaplan. And Dr. Kaplan had a kid that I, a little kid I'd play with. And one day he came up to me and he said, you know, the Jewish Community Center is opening a summer camp for kids in Elbert, Colorado. You're really good with my son. Why don't you go apply for a job? I applied for a job. And I loved it. I spent the summer there. Eventually, I became the director of that camp many, many years later. 
and uh, loved that very much. And I was a social worker at Jewish Community Center from age 17 to age 33. Last six years, I was one of the directors of the center. And I had an evening job doing group therapy with parolees from the state prison and mental patients from the state hospital because I had that master's degree. And I did group therapy two nights a week and met with a psychiatrist. And I decided to start public speaking just to promote the clinic. And I was speaking on mental health in general. Got interested in transactional analysis totally by accident. I mean, I'm at a party and somebody says, you know anything about transactional analysis? I says, it sounds too hard. And <laughs> guy called me and I went to a two-day workshop and I fell in love with this common sense psychology. Just loved it. And I got trained in it and uh, I just started speaking. And one day a guy came up to me and said, what do you charge to speak? I said, run that by me again. My friends used to pay me to be quiet. So I started charging to speak. And then companies started to hire me. And my first job, I have to tell the story because it, it relates to living in a children's home. My first job out of the state, I couldn't sleep that somebody was going to pay me to get on an airplane. So I, they paid me $500 a day plus $500 for the day of travel plus expenses in 1973. And I thought I was in heaven. <clears throat> and they picked me up in a Learjet I land in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, and I'm doing a speaking engagement at the Greenbrier Inn. In those days, Sam Sneed was the golf oh, pro. Oh, yeah. So um, they introduced me to Charlie Command. Some of you in Colorado will know Command Corporation in Colorado Springs. And he's six foot six, and I was just treated like a king. And the guy that brought me there invited me to uh, introduce me to Charlie Command, who's six foot six. I said, Charlie, let me be honest with you. Because of the way I'm being treated, I'm too, too important to talk to you. He and I laughed for 10 <laughs> minutes. He used to fly his Learjet from, from um, Connecticut to hear me speak in the Springs. And I said to him one day, well, what does it cost you to fly? He says, two grand. I said, well, why don't you pay me the two grand? I'll do some training in your company. So I would fly there once a month. I'm almost done. Uh, and then Charlie Command had a speaking engagement with the Young Presidents Organization, YPO's very famous worldwide executive organization. And he told them about me, and then they hired me. And then I was hired to go to a university, uh, YPO University in Vienna, Austria. I couldn't believe this. I met Ken Blanchard there. I was one of many speakers, including Ken Blanchard, who later became famous for situational leaders. He was famous for situational leadership then and later on for the one-minute manager and who stole my cheese. And he promoted me there, and he helped me get my first book published with Prentice Hall. And I quit being a therapist in 1975, and I've been training around the world since then. And I retired one year ago at age 85, and that's basically a fast summary of my story. Wow. And we're going to get to why you retired when you are clearly still at the top of your game. But it's good to have you here. And Thank you. A podcast is sort of a historical snapshot, much like if I took your picture right now. Yeah. And the thing is that it's popular medium, so much so that Joe Rogan, who's at the top of the field, um, they say he can't be canceled. He has so many people who want to listen to him, and guests are moving to Austin, Texas. He recently relocated just for a chance to be a podcast guest. Now, I'm no Joe Rogan, but you are a world-class guest. Wow. And I get you on because... During your career that you say you just retired from, 
You visited, what, 35 different foreign countries? Yeah, I spoke in the 35 countries. You worked there. All, you all, worked all, in 35 countries. Yes, in all 50 states. And one of my goals was to work in all 50 states. So I did seminars or spoke at conventions in uh, all of those places. You know, that's not bad for a Denver boy. This Denver boy, and I'm getting up there, I haven't been hardly anywhere. Where should I go? What what do you recommend since you've traveled the world? Where's the best place to go? Visit Colorado. It's fantastic. <laughs> I love that thought because I still are they still making you wear masks on the plane? It, and I can't help but think you retired right when the pandemic hit. Was it related? I had uh, yes because I was doing stuff on Zoom, and I didn't. There's no energy. I didn't feel the energy with the people I was speaking with. And I, you know, I just didn't like it. And I, and I said, you know, I'm tired of getting on airplanes. I've been married to the same wonderful woman. My wife, Susan, and I have been married 27 years. And we've been together maybe, maybe 18. We one time figured out with all the time I was gone. So I retired at age 85. And I figure it's time. Right. But what does she have to say about that? She was happy with it. We, we've done really well. We're really surprised that we'd be together 24 hours a day. It's a lot of you, I'm sure, were surprised at how well you did. And if you didn't do well, my condolences. Right. I want to get to your psychology. You, you have advanced degrees. Everybody needs some mental health assistance, especially in the wake of the pandemic. Retirement, that's a big thing. I'm about to be an empty nester. That's a rite of passage, mm. too. Yes. How do you think people, how do you counsel people to deal with big life changes like that? Well, a couple of things I'd say. It's off the top of my head. I think people need a clear structure for what they're going to do, some idea about how I'm going to fill my day in a decent way in a meaningful way or just in a relaxing way. So that number one is what do I do with my time? Number two, it's so important to be with people, even if it's on a telephone or on a Zoom call. We're human beings and we need other people. So I say key issues are having a structure for your day, do some things that you enjoy, and make sure you make contact with people. I've also noticed that a lot of people who aren't used to initiating contact Wait for people to contact them, and that's a big mistake. I think you need to initiate. You need to make it happen. I, for example, have started, when I was a summer camp director, The I started one of my staffs still meet, and I haven't been a summer camp director in 50 years. Uh, the kids that were brought up on the West Side, we meet once a month. We haven't rescheduled it again since the pandemic. Uh, and, and I get together with a bunch of people regularly. So I initiate. Don't wait for people to call you. Initiate. Make it happen. The, the pandemic must have been rough on you. You're such a people person. You're used to interacting with crowds of hundreds or thousands. And all of a sudden, we're all sitting in our houses. We're blessed to live in a great state, a great country. But psychologically, how do you think you and America are reacting to the pandemic. Well, you know, obviously a lot of people react in many, many different ways. Um, some people don't do so well. Others are very creative. Others get together with people they care about, even if it's just Zoom or telephone, but make it happen. And people vary in, in the way they adjust to these kinds of things. 
Alabayachover. We'll speak a little Yiddish. Yes. And I'd see you out at uh, the local restaurants. Yes. That's part of your plan, right? To oh, interact abs- with absolutely. people like that? Absolutely. To be with people you care about, to be willing to meet new people. But we're we're social beings, and it's really important to do that. If we have a relationship where our totality is just the person we live with, that's difficult. That's difficult on the person. In transactional analysis, we talk about strokes, strokes meaning attention. And if I have one source of stroking and no others, I that's, that's troubling. It's hard. It's very difficult on the other person and on you. So increase the number of people that you get strokes from. And this is a difficult time. Politics separates people like I've never seen in my lifetime. And we're coming off a post-pandemic. I wonder what the world is going to be like. The last time we talked was on the air. I was filling in afternoon drive time. You remember that? Sure. October 24, 2019. And we talked about what fraught times they were then and how families and workplaces were coming undone. And next thing I know, in November, November 16, 2019, they ripped my mic away because I wasn't speaking fondly of leader, our past dear leader who was president. I don't even like saying his name right now. Yes, yes. Are you going to get me in trouble like that again? Well, I wasn't interested in doing that. I I was interested in, you know, when we talked about America, I was interested in values. And I think instead of determining whether I'm a, so, whether I'm a, a Democrat or a Republican, uh, think of me in terms of the values I portray in the life I live you, and how I deal with people. Right. I, I don't even know your politics. We really haven't discussed it. But I told you about the fractious times, and it's only gotten more so. So that's what I'm wondering about. And uh, I think we come at it from a common perspective. Even though you've traveled the world, you said the best place to be is Colorado. Oh, yes. For me, for sure. And, and, and Colorado is America. Yes. And I love America. You love America. Yes. I'm worried about America like never before. July 4th, 2021. What's going on? I'm very concerned about what's happening with our democracy and how people, we can't agree on what facts are. How are we ever going to get along if we can't agree, have some source that says, these are facts, we believe it. And we don't agree on facts, how can we ever get anywhere? And we don't, we don't talk to each other. We talk, well, we talk to each other, but we don't listen. We don't really hear the other person. Biggest problem in conflict that we have, in my opinion, is that when somebody has a point of view that's different than mine, I immediately respond with my point of view that's different than theirs. And the key to really responding well is to tune into the other person. Acknowledge their point of view. You don't have to agree with it, but let them know you hear them. You could even repeat back what you hear. And that's really key, and most people don't do that, whether it's at home or whether it's in politics. I present my point of view, you present yours, I present mine, you present yours, and we don't tune into each other. And the darn problem with that is is that we, when we don't acknowledge somebody's point of view, that's a discount or a put-down of the person. Acknowledging, well, I hear what you have to say, that's interesting. I'd be interested in knowing why you feel that way. Okay, All right. have you thought about this? So let me tell you where I'm coming from after I acknowledge their point of view. The key to establishing rapport with another person 
is to get into their map of the world, which means to be understanding, you don't have to agree, and to imitate something about them. And that comes from the field of neuro-linguistic programming. It's very interesting. John Grinder and Richard Bandler, the founders of neuro-linguistics, <clears throat> found that when people are doing well with each other, they subconsciously imitate each other. Like if you were to see the two of us now, we're sitting with a very similar body posture uh, with our our hands down below our legs, etc., etc. And when you're doing well with somebody, you imitate them. Why? Because we have mirror neurons in the brain. That's why infants imitate their parents. And one Wait, the, am I imitating you or are you imitating me? I don't know. I don't know, but we are. Okay. And, and when you're doing, you might have the same tone of voice. You might have uh, the same energy. You might use the same body posture. You might use visual words like, I see what you mean, and the other person says, I get the picture. Or auditory words like, I hear you, and the other person says, I'm listening. You do that automatically. So when we're doing well with people, one clue is we imitate each other. The other thing that we do when we're doing well with people is we get into their map of the world. We really listen. If you would do those two things in conflict, you'd do so much better. I mean, the big problem is told in a story, I, I, a story about a man that goes to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem regularly and prays two times a day. And if a neighbor sees him, he prays two times a day, day in, day out, week in, week out. And he goes up to the fellow, he says, what are you praying about? He says, I'm praying that my wife and I will live in peace, that we will enjoy each other. He says, so how's it going? He says, it's like talking to a wall. And I think that's exactly what happens right. with politics. It, that's right. But, and I think your rules work. My gosh, you've laid these rules out. 14 rules from your book, uh, Say It Straight or You'll Show It Crooked. Yes. That was the name of your book. And what happens if the other side just won't say it straight? It's tough. It's tough. I mean, yeah. what do you do with somebody on January 6th who said that was Antifa? That was a plot against Trump who invaded the Capitol. You go, oh, or do you, I mean, what if do you, you want, do? If you want to talk about what I do theoretically, first of all, you can't change anybody else. All you can do is invite them to change. You can invite them to hear you. You can't change anybody. The sooner you learn that, the better. Marriages go a lot faster if you understand you, you aren't in control of anybody but yourself. You may think you are, but you're not. So you can invite people to change. So if somebody, if they're telling me they're from Antifa, then I'd want to hear, I'd be interested in knowing how you drew that conclusion. How did, what information do you have that tells you they're from Antifa? What did you see? What did you hear that tells you that? And if they continue to believe that way, well, they have a right to their belief. I don't, and I would tell them that I don't agree with that. And I tell them my, my thinking about it. When do you think you are at the top of your game or is it right now? Oh, I, I don't know. I think I started, luckily, at the top. I was at the right place at the right time. Uh, top of my game means I got the kind of exposure. I mean, I, I never thought I'd write a book. Me, write a book? And I'm saying that to a lot of you listeners. You, you could write a book, too. I mean, if I could write a book, you could write a book. And you came out with these 14 principles. Well, those are, those are 14 principles in uh, the book, Say It Straight, the first book Copyright I wrote... Copyright 1988. Yeah, the first book was The Transactional Manager. That was published by Prentice Hall. And that's transactional analysis. This book also has neuro-linguistic programming, which is common sense psychology with fancy names. 
Right, but to make your list, you made it 14. I'm sure you wouldn't stop at 13. Are you superstitious? <laughs> no, I'm not like, superstitious. Knock on wood. So you had 14 legitimate ones. Have yeah. you thought later, since 1988, maybe I should have added another? One. One. What's that? Self-love. Get to the point where you really like yourself. If you don't like yourself, it's hard to like other people. Somebody once said, how I feel about myself is reflected in how I feel about you and how I will allow you to feel about me. Translated. If I don't like myself, it's hard for me to like other people, and it's hard for me to invite them to like me. And that, that's really key. I got to get to the point. I don't have to like everything about me, but I have to basically like me. Would, I, would you choose you as a best friend? And if somebody were to ask me that, I'd say, you know, if I was a better listener, I think I would. As well as I teach this, sometimes I'm not a good listener. And I have to be conscious about it to be good with that person. That's amazing stuff. Are there any of the 14 that you would take out? No, no. They're all important. All right. Number one, say it straight or you'll show it crooked. We kind of talked about that. What that means basically is this. If I have a strong feeling about something, I disagree with somebody, I feel strongly about something, and I don't do something healthy about it, talk to them, maybe talk it out with somebody else, maybe write a note, maybe decide to get over it. If I don't do something like that, I'm going to show that person that I don't like what they did. I'm going to forget to do what they wanted me to do. I'm going to do it late. I'm going to do it wrong, etc., etc. If you don't say it straight, you show it crooked. A lot of yours has to do with honesty, honesty toward yourself. Understand your goals and direct your activity to accomplish them. Number two, I think that's beautiful. As a trial lawyer, I tried to do that. Here's my goal. How am I going to get there? Right, right. Have you ever thought, gosh, I could have been great in a courtroom. I, I, I like to talk. I'm persuasive. I know these psychological secrets to get into people's minds and make them do what I want them to I had, do? I had thought about that, I, but I thought lawyers had to work too hard at reading too many things. Uh, and I'm not a big reader, but... Uh, uh, I thought about a number of things I'd like to, but that but that was uh, was one I thought about a long, long time ago. You made a good choice because if you're a lawyer, you have a lot of bosses. Even if you're an independent operator, your clients are your boss. Sure, Seems sure. to me you created a world where you were your own boss. No, it's really the same thing. For example, uh, one organization that I worked for a lot in the last many years was the executive committee, later on called uh, Vistage. And I and I would I did um, 700 CEO groups did training of 700 CEO groups groups of CEOs and right. key execs, and you know they do an evaluation. If you get a number of bad evaluations, you don't get invited back. You know, so I the, gotcha. the right. reality is you always have a boss. One right, way or but another. you had your shtick that was foolproof. That's a nice thing. It's kind of like jury selection. I can use the same jokes every jury because they haven't heard them before. And you know you had shtick that's going to work, right? Oh, of course. I had a lot of stuff that's practical for human beings. Um, that, that's true, although every group is different. And even, right. if, even if you have a good sound concept, if that concept is something that the other person doesn't do, they want to defend against it. They want to defend against it, and so they don't like it. Uh, and they need to hear the concept. They really need to know the concept and know that they're capable of doing any of these things. 
I think that self-love, you might have gotten it with number three. Treat yourself and others with dignity and respect. Yeah. Treating yourself with dignity and respect means you spend time with people who value you. You don't allow people to discount you. That's not okay. If someone discounts you, if they interrupt you, you know, regularly, if they put you down, you you need to confront that in a decent way. And we can talk about that too. Uh, but And if they don't change, I ask you, why do you spend your time with people who don't value you? If you like yourself, you select people who will value you. If you don't like yourself, you have a tendency to select people who, who will either rescue you and do for you what you're capable of doing for yourself or will put you down with great regularity. So get to the point where you say, hey, you know, I like me. I don't have to like everything about me, but I like me. Okay, we have teased the 14 points, and you got a bonus one. People can still find you online at abewagner.com, and it's all listed there. I do believe they can buy your book. Your book's still available for sale? Yeah, you can get it uh, through Amazon. You can get the auditory version, which I didn't do, somebody else did, and the uh, electronic version, and... uh, you, you can't get the hard copy there, although I, if, if you get interested, you could send me an email and I'll uh, look at how you could get it through one of the presses that recently was interested in my book. Are you still at Abe Wagner at iCloud.com? Yes. Abe Wagner at iCloud.com. Let me stop you for one second because with a name like Wagner, you could be any Anglo-Saxon person, right? Sure. I think of Robert Wagner. And- sure. And yet, I, I know there was a Rabbi Wagner at the BMH. Sure, sure. Do people know you're Jewish when you're traveling to these 35 countries? I, I always make that a point because it's important to me. It's one of my goals is to say, hey, I'm hoping you're getting something for me, and you understand I have good ideas. And by the way, I'm Jewish, so if you have any belief systems about Jews— Take a look. Um, do I follow those belief systems that you've... I even did that in Egypt. I, I worked for British Petroleum in, Eng, in, in Egypt three times, in Cairo, and I let my groups know that I was Jewish. And uh, Right at the start? No. I want to develop rapport first. Right. I want to develop rapport first, because if they start with their prejudicial beliefs about me, it's pretty hard. Start with listening to what I have to say, et cetera, et cetera, and then I let them know I'm Jewish. You've got a pretty Jewish first name, Abraham. But you've traveled the world. Do people associate that, or everybody has Abrahams everywhere? If they do, I I don't know about it. I don't very often experience overtly anti-Semitism. Sometimes I do, but not very often. What about Abraham Lincoln? I would think if you're named Abraham, you must think about Lincoln a lot. When you grew up, you said, whoa, here's a president named Abe. I, I sometimes call myself Honest Abe, so I guess I do. But uh, I would say to you, if you're an Abe today, your name is Abe, you're either Jewish or you're Hispanic, one of the two. I've never seen many Abes that aren't one, either Hispanic I, or Jewish. I know, but I'm trying to think why that is. I'm thinking of Abe Polonsky, who was at the oh, center I loved him. growing up. I loved him. He was a great, great guy. This is a man who was the best instructor of anything having to do with athletics that I know. 
and a great heart and a wonderful guy, and he died far too young. He, was, uh, he died, I think, in his 50s. He had Alzheimer's, and he passed away in his 50s. He was a good friend of mine, a fishing buddy. And he was uh, in perfect shape. The guy, Unbelievable. I don't think he had any body fat. Absolutely right. Great guy. I remember him. Like, I grew up at the JCC. When you started, was it on the west side or was it always? West side. Okay. The that was before your day, yeah. Right. It my was... dad worked there in law sure, school, but sure. probably before your day. Well, we were probably close to, your dad was a number of years older than me, but on 16th and Irving Street, uh, the old uh, Gouldman Center it was called. And then uh, the center was on 14th and William, the corner of William and Col Williams and Colfax at the Benet Brith building. And then they built the facility they have now in on Dahlia Street. They must have had a basketball court, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they but did. But swimming pool? Not on the west side. On right, the, of course. The, I grew uh, up on, on the on east side, the on Alameda and Dahlia. Everybody knows that one now. It's still there. Yes, yes. The one on, uh, on Williams and Colfax did have a swimming pool in the basement. Small, in the small, indoor. Yeah, perfect. And you know, we could go on and on about the JCC Ranch Camp. I think I was sitting in this room when I got a call from my son Sam. Oh my God, I'm so homesick. Can somebody come get me? How many times did you have to deal with those sort of calls? I don't want to embarrass my oh, son. On occasion, I'll tell you a funny story. I had a kid from Chicago that was very homesick. I was the director of the camp. And I had a rule that I wasn't going to let him call home for the first couple of days because almost every kid could then adjust. This one kid couldn't and was crying. and every So finally, I let him call his father, who happens to be a very wealthy man in Chicago. And this is a true story. I said, okay, I have your dad on the phone. He says, hello, dad. <clears throat> How's the market? <laughs> that told me he was going to be okay at camp. Right. He he was he wanted to keep up on his portfolio. Yeah, he was telling his daddy really didn't feel he didn't he was not so bad. How's oh, the market? Okay. You never know. Maybe the kid was uh following the market. It's a new world, Abe. And again, podcasting is part of it. You know, this little thing we're doing right now, you could access this in Egypt uh, on Saturday. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, can yeah. it's the world wide web. Where do you go for your media? What informs you? Well, I've been using Zoom predominantly. No, I'm talking about what do you consume? Where do you get your news? Where do you get your oh, information? Oh, I, I watch the, the, the various TV programs that have news. Right, but a lot of us have grown where they can't tolerate things. I was on Fox News hundreds of times in my life. I know a lot of those people, but it gives me a stomachache to watch Tucker Carlson or right. Sean Hannity. Yes. Are you like me? Yes. Yes. But there are they're the top rated cable show. I there know. are other people drinking this in. It's 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 scary the belief system that people have without checking it out, without having some source that says, is this a fact or is this an opinion? Is this a lie? Is it the truth? We don't have we don't have that. I mean, I tell people to do fact check, politicheck. Uh, they pull it a fact they don't do that right because that's the deep state that's another part of the conspiracy all this conspiracy theory talk i i started to stand up to when people say deep state or globalists or this or that sometimes i hear you mean jews right sometimes maybe i'm paranoid as the child of 
Barbara and Sheldon, but I, I was taught to be vigilant, and I know you were too. I can't help thinking about the memorial at the JCC for the Holocaust that I walked by so many times. Tell people about that with the commemorating the six million, but do you see where I'm going? It's heavy, but I want to talk to you about this. Yeah, it's, it's very sad. I think what's happening in our country to a large extent um, that a lot of people who who are not one of the problems we have in our country without question is the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and i don't like that and i the middle class is disappearing that has to change that has to change and people that are disenfranchised people that aren't being treated fairly people who have trouble making a living you know my heart goes out to them and some of those people have a need to blame somebody else and i there's only one person you can change that's yourself that's the, the only person you can change. I mean, I'll give you an example of how I have no control over you. I put a gun to your head and I say, all right, you kill your three kids. Here's a knife or I'm going to kill you. Could I make you kill your three kids? Heck no, I couldn't. Why am I using an extreme example? It's to make the point you can't make anybody anything. You can't make them happy and you can't make them mad. You can invite it. You can contribute to it. You can influence it, but you can't make it happen. So understand, all of those people that you think are your, their fault that you're not doing well, you need to ask yourself, what can I do differently so that I do well? And I think we need to take a look at the inequities in our society and the inequities. We live in a wonderful America, and we've had systemic, systemic racial uh, um, prejudice for many, many years. And that's sad, and we need to change it. And we still have a wonderful, wonderful country. And for the people who say, love it or leave it, no, I say love it. And if, and if you have a problem with it, love it and try to change it. Don't leave it. I love that kind of talk. But you have to start from a common basis. And the thing is that some people just shut it out. We love America. It's our July 4th show. We're trying to um, make it better, but sometimes I worry whether our institutions are working. For example, free press and the people are manipulated. They get fed outrage. So many people say, I'm a victim. And that's the opposite of what you're saying. No, you control yourself. Nobody can make you a victim, right? But it's the outrage machine to sell soap. And I, I don't know how we get out of this spiral. Well, there are, there, are, there are legitimate victims. There are people who are abused and, and don't feel like they're in a position of changing things. And sometimes that's true. I'm making a living and I have to feed a family and my boss is a tyrant, but I, I have trouble getting another job. And I understand that. You, you have to put up with some stuff. But, uh, so there, but, uh, but a lot of people take a victim position they don't need to take. In transactional analysis, we talk about the drama triangle. Imagine an inverted triangle. Up on the left, you have a persecutor, you have a rescuer, and at the base of it is the victim. You have a persecutor, rescuer, and victim. And we go around the triangle. Let me give you an example of how that works. Uh, little Tommy is not listening to his mama. Uh, and I say to mama, mama, you know the drama triangle. Who is Tommy? She says, well, Tommy's the persecutor because he's not listening to me. I'm the victim. Now, if I say to Tommy, who are you? He'd say, I'm the victim. Mama's the persecutor. So mama calls daddy at work and says, when you get home, you talk to him. Now, mama, the victim, is calling the rescuer. 
Okay, so she calls Daddy at work. <clears throat> Daddy comes home, takes the kid in the back room, and starts shouting at him. Now the rescuer has become the persecutor. The persecutor has become the victim. Okay? So we we go all around all around the right. thing. Right. Nice. And How do you stop it? You stop it by, not number one, not taking a victim position, asking myself the tough questions. A way to stop taking a victim position, well, let me say this to you. Victims have a tendency not to take responsibility for their own thinking, feeling, and behavior. They have a tendency to do that. They want to blame somebody else, don't want to look at themselves. I've taken victim positions in my life. It's not like I've never done that, and probably everybody has. But in conflict, some people are automatically the victim. It, it and 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 they don't speak up and speak for themselves. And one of the things I suggest to people is that you use ownership words when you when you talk. And it's a constant reminder that I'm in charge of me. For example, most people, if you ask them their point of view or you ask them about something, instead of addressing the other, instead of presenting their own point of view, they use the word you. Like, how are you enjoying this show? Well, you know when you're not used to sitting all day, you don't find it easy. Instead of saying, I know when I'm not used to sitting all day, I don't find it easy. Use I when you mean I, you when you mean you, we when you mean we. One of the things I drive myself nuts about, it doesn't drive me nuts, that's ownership words. I drive myself nuts about is to be in a restaurant and have the waiter or waitress say, are we ready to order? Did we enjoy our meal? Instead of, did you enjoy your meal? Say, I when you mean I. Another thing is, instead of saying, you make me mad, if I believe you make me mad, I'm powerless. I'm powerless. You've got to change so I'm not mad. Instead, I, I use the words, when and about. I get mad when you talk to me. I felt irritated about what you said. You didn't make me mad. You didn't hurt my feelings. I felt hurt when you did that. Now, that's a constant reminder to me that I'm in charge of me. And a big issue in life is taking charge of your life. Stop giving the other people the power over you by believing they're in charge of you. And when you rescue people and you do for them what they could do for themselves, you're not helping them. You're inviting them to be dependent upon you. How are your kids going to ever grow up if you make decisions for them they could make for themselves? If you do for them what they could do for themselves? You need to help them to, to make decisions for themselves and to do what they need to do instead of rescuing. Rescuing people who really need it, I'm for that. But rescuing people when all you do is invite dependency, that's not a healthy thing to do. It's a form of rejection. I'll give you another example of a rescue. When you mistreat me and I say nothing, <clears throat> in a way I'm rescuing you because I think you can't handle it. Speak up. You know, I, I was really unhappy with what you said. I didn't like that. I wish you'd treat me this way. Speak up. You got to trust people to speak up. If you don't trust, you won't do it. I know you didn't ask me, but you probably could. You are a great podcast guest because you are full of bright ideas. How does religion figure in this? When you get up there in Egypt or in any country and you establish a rapport and you say, by the way, I'm a Jewish person, again, you can explain how and when you bring it up. But when you say that, are you saying, that's my religion, that's my heritage, that's my race? What are you trying to convey to those people? Uh, well, the reason I bring it up is because 
they're uh, in a place like Egypt. They have all sorts of beliefs about Jews because of their issues with Israel historically. And so that's one of the reasons I bring it. In other countries, I bring it up because if they have negative feelings about Jews, I'm one. The only way you change that is to have decent experiences with other people. Right. If you have negative feelings about blacks or about people of color of any type, the only way you change it is to have decent experiences with those people. Allow yourself to get to know them. Allow yourself to be with them. Um, and when you say, how do you explain what I am as a Jew? That's a very difficult thing to do because if you're a Muslim, you believe in Muhammad. If you're a Christian, you believe in Christianity. You can be a Jew and not believe in Judaism. So it's a peoplehood. It's a culture. It's, it's above and beyond just a religion. So it's a little confusing. It's one of the things Arnold Toynbee never could explain. What is a Jew? One thing we know for certain is if the religion were to go away, then we would go away. I agree. That would happen. And the religion has allowed, especially the Orthodox religion, has allowed Jews to exist all of these years, all of these uh, centuries. Right. My dad would give to Rabbi Wasserman, who runs... Uh, the Talmud Torah school, he'd buy a matzah and he'd give him some money. I'd say, Dad, we're not orthodox like that. Uh, why do you give there? He said, who's going to keep the Jewish people alive? You? That's right. That's true. Well, it was sort of a put down to me, but I try to do what I can, and I don't hide my Jewishness either, and neither do you. We're both proud Jews, but I'm worried because... In this fractured political time, I'm worried that's going to extend locally to the Denver Jewish community. It's, it already has. It has. Let's talk Anti-Semitism about Anti-Semitism increased in the United States 65% the year Trump was running for, for uh, presidency in 2016, I think it was. Uh, and he, what he did is he made, he made hatred okay. And if you hate one group, no other group is safe. No other group is safe. When I've had any of my Jewish friends say negatives about blacks or Hispanics, and I have stood up to that strongly against that, they, they don't understand. When you can categorize an entire group of people, then it makes it okay to ca categorize an entire group of Jews. Let me ask you something. Are all the people in your family the same? Are all the people in your neighborhood the same? Are all your relatives the same? Are all your friends the same? Well, if they're not all the same, how can you decide that all blacks or all Jews or all Hispanics are the same? Well, I had three bad experiences. Well, based upon that random sampling of three out of the millions and millions that exist, you've drawn a conclusion. So, you know, my point is hatred of any one group is hatred of all of us. We have to all care about one another. We're all Americans. We all, when we have a common enemy, when we have a war, all of a sudden, whether you're a Jew or you're black or you're brown or you're, you're from Japan or you're from China, doesn't matter. You're American. So let's understand we're Americans. We live in this country. It's a land of freedom. That's beautiful. On the 4th of July, what does that mean to you? How have you celebrated Independence Day through the years? Well, generally, we do family things. Do We have a picnic. We do things like that. But Independence Day is very important. And, and we as Americans have to, have to appreciate the fact that America is a wonderful place. In all the places I've traveled, I have never, ever enjoyed a place better than Colorado, ever. 
And many of you can say, no matter where I go, even if I go to a fancy place, what there is no place like home. And for me, that's Denver, Colorado. That's called, it's the United States of America. I've been at a lot of beautiful places. I'll tell you something. If you haven't seen our national parks, boy, are you missing something. This is just a beautiful, beautiful country. I love America. Everything you say, I echo. But we have to come to grips with certain parts of our past. That's what this critical race theory debate is about right now. And I have to say that I consider myself well-educated, but until recently, I didn't know anything about that Tulsa situation I where they either. burned out I didn't know that Wall either. Street. Didn't know that either. And what did you know about the Alamo growing up and learning about that? Now I'm reading a book called Forget the Alamo, where you know what that fight was really about? No, no I really don't. Slavery. Those guys in the Alamo wanted slavery in Texas and Mexico hated slavery even before America did because of the way they'd been treated by Spain. And so when they had their revolution, they said, we're not going to have slavery anywhere in our territories, including in Texas. And these Americans had come to grow cotton and they brought their slaves. And that's what the tension was about. But it doesn't make America and those, you know, Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie. Anyway, I still love America, but it's it's like a family. And and the thing is, we're a work in progress. Here's I love all your say it straight tips, but this one: live in the here and now. I mean, I feel bad about the Alamo and horrible about Tulsa, and 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 yet I love America. Let's talk about now. What are we going to do right now? America has had good days and bad days, but what are we going to do right now? We've got, to tr- we've got to do what we can to treat people, ourselves and others, with dignity and respect. We need to speak up when people mistreat us. We need to let people know how much we appreciate them. That's very important. People need a pat on the back. There's a couple of kinds of strokes I'd like to talk about that I think could be helped. Remember, strokes are forms of attention. One form of attention is a positive stroke for being you. You don't have to do anything to get it. You don't have to perform. When I remember your name, it's a positive stroke for being you. When I forget your name, it's a negative stroke Mm -hmm. for being you, someone I should remember. When I listen to you, it's a positive stroke for being you. When I interrupt you and don't listen, it's a negative stroke for being you. Uh, When I I do something for you, it's, can I get the door for you? Can I give you a hand with that? Sure, you have a right to speak. How's your son doing? I heard you were having a tough time. All of that says I care about you. That's key. Then there's positive strokes for what you do. Compliments that are sincere, not phony. You did a nice job on that. I like the way you handled that. You really did that well. I let people know I care about them and I let them know I appreciate what they do. I care about you and I appreciate what you do. And another thing in decent relationships is I have to be able to give you constructive negative strokes for what you do. I need to be able to, somebody said, care front. If you confront somebody that does negative stuff, it's a form of caring as long as you do it in a decent way, as long as you do it in a decent way. And here's a clue on how to do that. When you were a little kid and you wanted a cookie from your mother, you had a goal in mind. I want a cookie. 
I'm only four or five years old. I want a cookie for my mother. Then you knew how to set the stage. You know, Mommy, you make good cookies. Mommy, I cleaned my room. I took that concept and said, if you're going to confront somebody or care for somebody, number one, be clear about what your goal is. Number two, set the stage. And there are all kinds of ways of setting the stage. I know you meant well when you made that decision. I just wish you'd ask my opinion before you made it. That's called presume people have virtuous motives. Here's another one. This one I give myself credit for. Start with a negative and end with an honest positive. You know, I get annoyed when you show up late because when you're not here, we don't get the full benefit of your presence. Start with a negative, end with an honest positive. Don't start with a positive and end with a negative. You're one of my best employees. Lately, you've been coming to work late. That doesn't sit well. So I have 14 of those. Uh, those kinds of principles nice. that you set the stage in a decent way so people will listen to you. Another way to say that is set the tone. I have a song, my troubadour this week, set the tone. And that's part of what you mean when you say set the stage. And it's not just what you say, it's how, it's how you say it, right? You can say anything anyway, like uh, nice, nice to see you, nice to see you. Nice to see you, real nice. These are called different states of mind. We call them ego states, states of the conscious mind. And you can say anything from any state. And a smile works wonders, right, for setting the tone. <clears throat> yes, if you smile when you're angry, it's confusing, however. And a lot of people right. do that. Right, but you if know. you start with the negative and go to the positive, don't get too harsh, but toward the end, put a smile on your face. Yeah. Well, the whole idea, you know, it, they all work together. It's an ego state is your tone of voice, facial expression, body posture, gestures, and words. So all of that works together. When you're in a positive state of mind, and uh, in transactional analysis, we say, I give you fast six states of mind. This may be a little confusing. The three states I don't want to be in is the critical parent. Nice to see you here on time for a change. Don't you ever listen? Leave her alone. What do you want now? Can't you see I'm busy? You look and sound like a critical parent, and people do that regularly. Another red state I don't want to be in is the rebellious child. Well, it wasn't my fault. I'm not going to do it. You can't make me. No. Well, what about when you? And the third is the compliant child. Well, uh, uh, can, can I say something? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I'm so dumb. Those are the three states I don't want to be in, and all of us have all three. The three blue states that I want to be in are the nurturing parent. Gee, you did a nice job on it. Keep up the good work. You have a right to feel that way. Hey, fella, you got to be to work on time. Notice the way I said it. I didn't say you got to be to work on time. You got to be to work on time. You're a key guy here. The natural child is free, open, and spontaneous. I'm having a great time today. I don't feel well. You know, I'm irritated. You said you'd call me. You didn't. All of that is fine. It's as as. As we're talking about, it's how you say something. And the third one is the, um, the adult, logical, reasonable, and rational. That's the state I'm in now. And I don't expect you to understand all that, but with this small little introduction. So we have three red and three blue states. You want to stay blue and people will respond well to you. Turn red and it's better not said. And you can confront people from blue. You can care front them from blue. We call those ego states, states of the conscious mind. I said to a fellow one time, what's an ego state? He said, Texas. <clears throat> one Texan was talking to another Texan. He says, I don't mean to be bragging on myself, none. 
But I get up first thing in the morning, I get my old pickup truck, and I drive, and I drive, and I drive till way after sundown, and I never reach the end of my property. Other Texans says, I know what that's like. I used to have a pickup like that. Oh, I love that joke. I've heard it various ways. The Texas guy goes to the little Israeli farm and says, well, it's nice, but my property is in the Israeli says, I, I used to have a pickup truck like that. <laughs> it's See, used in many ways. Right. My dad told a lot of jokes, and we would drive from Denver to Vegas and back, and especially if he was in a good mood, he could make a joke last about two hours. I, I, I'm so grateful for my upbringing. And to know a guy like you who has accomplished so many things, what more do you want to accomplish? You got another book in you? Not really. I, I, I don't think so. Uh, what else do I want to accomplish? I just want to have a good life and love my three sons and my sister and my wife and my friends and, and be decent human being to other people and be philanthropic Give give money away where it's needed. Uh, when every time every time I go to McDonald's with the drive-through, I leave a guy a two-dollar bill. I mean, it's that sort of thing. A guy was just drying my car at one of those places. I gave him a five-dollar bill. These people are having a tough time now. They really need money now. And and if if you're able, do that. Do that. I mean, I wanted to be a decent human being the rest of my life. Well, you've accomplished so much in your life, Abe Wagner. Now you've done a podcast. I can't thank you enough. And um, we will. you can download it. And uh, that way, how many? You have three sons. You have grandchildren. I don't have any, but I have uh, through my wife. I have four grandkids through my wife. Right. but I, but have, I have three sons. One lives in Tokyo. One lives in Beijing. Oh, my God. And one lives in Denver. That's unbelievable. Yeah, people talk about, my kids are away from me. One lives in Littleton and the other one's in Cheyenne. I'd give up. I'd give that for, my son years ago said to me, Dad, they're having an exchange program with Japan. Can I go? I said, sure, you can go. Little did I know that he'd spend his life there. Yeah, well, maybe they'll come back and you are a world traveler. Not anymore. Must, Not but anymore. what did you do with all your miles? My God. Or oh, were we it always private jets? Family used, never private jets. Family used them. Uh, some, well, you told us about that one private jet. Well, they, somebody else paid attorney. for that. Right, <laughs> I'm just saying. But yeah. uh, you got up to, I imagine, unbelievable with United miles. With United Airlines, I was 3.8 million miles Oy. with United, yeah. I worked in Asia a lot and in Europe a lot. Singapore, I probably worked... 40 or 50 times, Japan 20 times, uh, Europe probably 15 or 20 times, that sort of thing. Are people just people wherever you go? Absolutely. Human beings want to have a decent life. They want to be able to make a decent living. They want to be able to have a place, uh, a home if they can, decent food. They want to be able to take care of their kids and give their kids a good education. And it doesn't matter where you go. We all want the same basic things. We all want the same basic things. And I want America to be here for my kids, their kids. You can't stop right now, but I, I'm just worried, and I don't want to end on a negative, but January 6th really bothered me. Me too. And I'm worried about America. Why did it bother you so much? Well, it's the whole concept. The, whole, the thing that bothers me so much is 
we have a fair, reasonable election, and it's questioned time and time and time again. So every election in the future, are we going to have 27 different groups uh, whatever the election is, if it's a local election, if it's a county election, are we going to have 27 different groups have to relook at it? I mean, come on. We got to buy the basic thing. It's a fair election. That's the way it is. I agree. Let's not get off on that. Let's say happy birthday, America. Abe Wagner, thank you a million for this. And I wish you nothing but peace and happiness, my friend. Same to you, Craig. And, and if I ask you, can I buy you breakfast and get your wisdom? Because I could use it on a daily basis. Well, let me tell you something. You've got as much wisdom to give me, so it's a deal. All right, we'll exchange. What a guy, Abe Wagner. Thanks again. Thank you. AbeWagner.com. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Troubadour, you are sort of strange right now. You refused my offer of a Gatorade. Well, and you you told me the reason is you just had lunch. Right. So what does that mean? It meant it means that I've I've imbibed. I ate, I drank, and I walked over to your Wait house. Wait a second. Did you start the fourth of July weekend a little early? I may have. All right, it's cause for celebration. You're a musician. What the hell, okay? We don't need excuses to celebrate. It's our first show of our second year together. How do you feel about that? I'm ready, ready for the new one. Do you have the music? 
I've, I have the beginnings of uh, what, what what I hope to uh, will suffice. Yes. We need another 50s song. I don't know if I can pull that off. Can I have your permission to play one song twice? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, we have to Any play the 4th of July. But we have another original composition to keep the record going in our second year. And it's perfect. It's called Set the Tone. Set the Tone. Tell us about that song. The idea is you create your own your own reality, your own opportunity. Don't let anyone hold you down. It's your wise philosopher kind of song. I, lo- I like it when you take on that parental role. You even say, hey, I'm talking to you, son. At best, I can tell you have two daughters. So are you talking to me or are you talking to my boys? I was talking to Riley. Oh, Riley, that's right. When he walks his dog, Riley, he yells, son, son. You feel like you are Riley's father. Well, uh, I am. Because you are? His father. A dog. <laughs> Isn't that the logical it conclusion is. there? It is. Anyway, it's great the way that all of our dogs get along, and it was nice for you to interact with my beautiful mother-in-law, Diane Bartlett, the other night, and within the last couple of weeks, we even got Rachel and Samuel, and we've seen each other's family, and that's cool, and you're about to go off on a great family adventure. Tell us as much or as little about that because it might inspire some more songs. These are rites of passage. Well, yes. And first, I want to say it was a pleasure meeting Diane, your mother-in-law. And um, Diane, if you're out there, great to meet you. So we are leaving uh, in a couple of days. I'm taking my younger daughter, Rachel, to New York City, where we're getting her set up in her apartment in Manhattan. That's a big step. You've got to... I know how many projects you have going with your remodeling business. Mention the name again. Lookout Renovation. And your band is in demand. Give out the name of your band in the next gig that people can watch you perform. So we're the Vipers, and we'll actually be uh, in Boulder on July 17th for playing for the, um, the Blues Foundation um, benefit. You have been discovered, especially in Boulder, especially on this podcast. I hope when people say, hey, Dave Cunders, do you have a podcast? I hope you say yes, because this is your baby, too. It is. You've been part of every one of these. And Carol McKinley, who's blessed guest, remember her? She just hosted her first podcast for some reportorial. It's called um, The Big Ponder, and I recommend it. And it's about a musician named Sibyl Byer. And she was just a mom. She grew up. She was a musician. She wrote a lot of songs like you. She recorded them on tapes, whatever kind of old technology existed 35 years ago. And her son found it. And for her 60th birthday, they played it. And everybody said, whoa. And now that's gone into being a huge album. She's discovered out of nowhere The album called Color Green. I bring this up because I think even though the Vipers are huge, you are a bit of an undiscovered genius. (laughs) Please, Craig. I'm telling you. Undiscovered, yes. Genius, probably not. Well, I'll say this. I mean, I love your songwriting. 
And I love your voice, although you go soprano on this song. I've never seen you reach so high. Tell everybody about that experience and why you went for it. I apologize. It won't happen again. No, you went high right while you were talking about needing to shake fruit from the tree, right? Right. Well, that's what the melody called for. So sometimes you were up in the I launch, yes, yes, I launch into the stratosphere. Yeah, but the, I, places that, I have no, I really have no, uh, no place being. All right. So we're going to play 4th of July after we play Set the Tone, kicking up our second year. Thank you, Troubadour. Let's do it, Craig. Let's do it. Normally, we have one song from our troubadour, Dave Gunders, but this week we have two because the 4th of July is just perfect for 
Independence Day. If you want to find the great music of Dave Gunders, go to SoundCloud, The Best of Dave Gunders, or just listen every week as we debut his amazing library of songs. Enjoy the 4th of July by Dave Gunders, our troubadour. Just don't pay Take the grind another day Cause you're too beautiful And a new life's calling Heading north Highway 1 To our left Setting sun Pacific shining far below Out in front Just the open road Not thinking at all Where we're going all my life never been a question Can't stand in line searching for the answer Freedom song, that's the one I turn to It's the right place, right time It's the 4th of July Some folks don't mind staying still Measure days and time to kill But it's a crime, baby, wouldn't you say Tomorrow feels just like today And that ain't no place we're going All my life, never been a question I won't stand in line, got to be in motion With me, feel a road calling. You won't see it all. Willing to try on the 4th of July. So, ride, ride, hold on tight, catch the wind. Taking flight, ready now to start new, doing what we're born to do in this great land. Big dreams awaken. All my life, never been a question. Can't stand in line searching for the answer. Freedom song, that's the one I turn to. When I'm restless, give me wings to fly on this 4th of July. Calling Independence Day. It's the 4th of July. Nothing gonna slip away. 
Fourth of July. I'm gonna slip away. Fourth of July. Graduated CU Law School in 1981. And now here it is, 2021. I'm coming up on 40 years. It's flown by. I keep learning. But I know things. And I'm available to be your lawyer. I have a great law firm behind me, Springer and Steinberg. We do it all. 303 861 2800. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Every Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Colorado time, I publish a new podcast. Get it straight right then to your smartphone. Please subscribe. Thank you. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I think this is the very first tax attorney we have had in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. John McGuire, welcome. Thank you, Craig. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Happy 3rd of July. Happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So always a great time of year. Are you an American? Yes. Yes, I am. Okay. Tell us about your upbringing. Where in America do you hail from? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Columbus, Ohio. They call it the heart of it all, right? Um, Born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, and then uh, went to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana for undergraduate work, and then eventually made my way out to uh, beautiful Colorado. So you were Big Ten all the way. Let me guess, a huge Buckeyes football fan, right? Yes, go Bucks! huge Buckeye fan. What about basketball? Is it the Hoosiers or the Buckeyes? Yeah, it's always a hard call with, with basketball. It's not as easy. I'd probably go with the team that has the best chance for success that year. So when Ohio State plays Indiana in football, do you always root for Ohio State? Yeah, always rooting for Ohio State. You know what they call that? Front running. <laughs> yeah, recently it's 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 been a good time to be a Buckeye fan, at least recently. I've gotten lucky. That's all right. We've got a lot of great sports out of here. What brought you to Colorado other than DU Law School? What appealed to you about this part of the world? You know, I'd I'd never even really skied before and I had a uh couple of friends that the year between undergraduate and law school, they were going to take a year off, be a ski bum. And I jumped on that ship and uh, 
after I'd spent that winter out here, I never wanted to leave. Which resort community? Pretty much like Vail, Beaver Creek. We were working up in Beaver Creek, living in Avon, and uh, primarily, yeah, skiing at Vail as much as we could, and in between, you know, work and sleep. I hear they need workers now. Could you still do it? Uh, I could. I don't know if the the life I have now would let me do it. But um, what was uh, your lifestyle back then? Were you married or single? No, I mean I was twenty two years old and single, and you know had the just easier time to to work that type of life. But now, you know, married, couple of kids, it'd be much harder to do. What year are you talking about? Because Bill Buckley, former Denver Chief Deputy DA, was in Craig's Lawyers Lounge, and he did a year in bail. But it was right at the outset of bail, 64, 65, and he can sing folk songs. He was running a hotel. What years were you there, and what was your job, or jobs, plural? I was there the ski season of 2020, 2021, or excuse me, no, 2000 and 2001, so about 20 years ago. And uh, we worked room service up at the Hyatt and Beaver Creek. So it's primarily night work and let you ski all day. Oh, my gosh. I bet you have stories. <laughs> we, <laughs> we do, yeah. It was, it was quite fun. I'll bet you. Because people go on vacation and they kind of lose their mind, right? Oh, yeah. You know, you see everything when you're, right, working in a that type of environment, working in a hotel, it was a pretty nice hotel at that, and um, people were just having a great time on vacation, right? How interesting. Probably a lot of them on expense-paid trips, which kind of gets to the topic of the day. Let me tell you why I needed a tax attorney, because I was thinking about the 4th of July and Yankee Doodle Dandy, George M. Cohan. I thought, who was that guy? And then I looked him up and I saw that there was an IRS tax rule based on his life, which is really quite interesting on a day when Alan Weiselberg, as we record, has just left court after being uh, informed he's indicted on a bunch of state tax charges. And as I'm looking up the Cohan rule, what pops up, the law firm of John McGuire right here in Denver, Colorado, I got on the phone with him. And we started talking, and next thing you know, here we are. Now, I took tax at CU Law School. I enjoyed it, but I thought, gosh, this is really a specialty. But you had the class, and you said, this is what I want to do. How did it come about that you are a tax lawyer? Yeah, I, I didn't go in directly. You know, in law school, if you would have said tax, I would have probably screamed and ran the other way. But, um, you know, after initially working primarily in transactional work, mostly business work, um, you know, you see the relationship of, of all types of law that also end up in the realm of, of tax. So it seemed like a, a very good field to get a background in. And so after being out of law school for a few years, I went back to uh, DU's LLM program in tax, you know, got my LLM there. And, um, you know, here we are today. It's a, it's a what wide What does LLM stand for? It's for your legal letters. Master is what I saw when I looked it up. <laughs> wow. How much more law school is that? 
Well, it kind of depends. Um, if you do it while you're in law school, you could pretty much do it in about a year. I did it, uh, you know, while I was still working and it took me about two and a half to three years. I recall uh, masters of laws, I think is what, what it kind of stands for backwards. But um, I, I see. Yeah. But, but it, it, it seems to me that to get tax advice from somebody who's less than qualified with your advanced degree, doesn't that set you apart? Yeah, I mean, well, I would hope to some extent. I mean, I think we've all taken courses, classes that we, you know, got through, maybe even got a great grade, but never really practiced in that area. But I certainly think it it helps. I mean, a lot of the tax attorneys I work with, um, you know, went went back and got that same degree or got it while they were in law school. And my associate right now is working on it. So I think if you're going to work in that field, it, it certainly you know, helps and hopefully sets you apart to at least some extent, depending upon where you're practicing. Sort of like the rules of golf. I mean, you have to master the rule book and there are changes all the time. You have to keep up on the changes. I don't know if you play golf, but is that a good analogy? I think it's probably as good as any. Yeah, I'm a horrible golfer. Well, but the rules are the rules, and some people don't want to play by the rules when it comes to paying taxes and doing it the right way. What kind of advice do you give clients on this day where uh, the chief financial officer, Alan Weisberg, is indicted, the Trump Organization, accused of tax fraud? What happens if you have a client who says, I don't want to pay taxes, and you know what? I want to... Uh, pay for my accountant's kid's education, and why can't I do it? Find a way. Right. What do you say? Yeah, well, I mean, one, I guess they, they may not be a client, but just say that, you know, you, you can't do that. It's, you know, as an attorney, you know, we can't continuously help someone break the law, right? Once we know that that's their intent, you need to advise them of what the law is and, um, you know, why you advise against it, correct? Right. And if they proceed anyway, what's your obligation as a tax lawyer? Well, I mean, obviously we'd be covered by attorney-client privilege, but probably under those circumstances, if they're you know knowingly breaking the law and committing fraud, would be to you know withdraw from the attorney-client relationship. What if they say, "Look, John McGuire, I'm paying you a lot of money. I want you to push it up as close to the line." And then I want you to go a little past it. I just don't want to get audited. What would your response be to that? Um, you know, I still, I don't, I don't think I could do the work. I mean, there's fine lines and there's different positions, you know, you can take. But I think once you cross that line, in my opinion, it usually becomes pretty black and white that, that you're doing the wrong thing. And that not only are you putting yourself in potential hot water, but also your client, right? Um, at that point, you're not serving anyone's best interest. So, you know, you may have been there yourself as an attorney, but, you know, having someone, you know, ask you to do that where it's obviously incorrect is just, uh, at least, you know, how we've tried to operate our firm is just not, not work we would. I want to hear about your firm. I want to hear about your life because no, that's not my world. I get called generally by people who have had a traumatic thing happen, either sure. a collision or some kind of confrontation. 
or they've been arrested. And so, of course, I counsel them to try not to get arrested again and that sort of thing. But you work with people on an ongoing basis and you counsel businesses, I assume. Tell us about the life of uh, an accomplished tax attorney like yourself and uh, give a shout out for your law firm. Sure. So, I mean, in terms of taxation and what we work in, it could be everything from, you know, IRS matters, you know, a tax audit, someone owes a tax liability, or there's just a problem we're trying to resolve at, you know, the federal tax level. Um, You know, in addition to that, we do an awful lot of tax planning for businesses and individuals, whether it be from, you know, the structure of, you know, their business entity or entities to, purchase or acquisition of an entity, you know, all of those uh, issues have have tax implications. Um, We also work from kind of an estate planning perspective, gift and estate taxation and related matters. And, um, you know, also do certain foreign account reporting for clients, as you, you know, may know if you have certain foreign assets in excess of certain dollar amounts, um, there's different types of, of reporting. And uh, it's not always too obvious, and it's it's pretty frequent that uh, a client may contact us, and they had a foreign bank account or asset, and they had no idea they had to report it or report some of the income from it. So, um, yeah, if that helps, that's kind of the the tax world that that we live and work in. Right, but do people call you with a problem? Uh oh, I got this letter in the mail, and is that how it begins sometimes? Certainly. I mean, they may have gotten a notice, you know, from the IRS that IRS is proposing a, you know, a change to their income tax return or they're looking for an income tax return to be be filed or perhaps they already owe a tax liability and they need to resolve that. But a lot of calls, I think, are spurred by, you know, a notice or contact from the IRS. And I noticed that you said if there are federal tax problems, but what if I have a problem with the state of Colorado or the city of Denver or some other municipality? There are an amazing array of taxing authorities out there, right? Certainly, yeah. And then usually, you know, where there's a federal liability, at least if it's income tax, there's probably a a state issue. So we, we do, we work with all of the state taxing authorities being in Colorado, primarily, you know, the Colorado Department of Revenue. But um, I, I think at this point, probably have represented probably a client in most every state. Most states will let you file, sign a power of attorney, even if you're licensed in another state. <clears throat> nice. And what about crypto? That's the latest thing. What are the tax implications is the government watching what is going on at all these new brokerage houses? I certainly think so. I mean, on the 2020-1040, there's now a check the box if you have acquired um, or hold any crypto. So that to me is a little unusual. You know, they don't ask most people, you know, check the box if you own GM or Microsoft stock. So I kind of, you know, found that interesting. Um, and I, I think they're pushing a lot of these companies to, you know, issue what would be akin to a 1099 from a bank if you received interest or dividends. So I certainly think it's something they're they're looking at and trying to have more proper reporting done, especially with the values and the, you know, you're looking at billions and billions of dollars now to what, you know, a handful of years back, most people kind of laughed and shrugged it off and it's gotten very real. 
Right. Sort of like Donald Trump. A lot of people laughed and shrugged him off. Now, I'm personally afraid the guy still has too much power. Apparently, he's talking about coming back in 2024. I read all the books, Mary Trump. I've learned a lot about Fred Trump. New York Times has exposed the tax schemes that just are prevalent throughout the Trump family history. And to his credit, when he debated debated Hillary Clinton, he said, yeah, I don't pay taxes. That's because I'm smart. I'm a, I'm a genius when it comes to these things. But you know it's not kosher. You can't be paying for uh, your family, for example. Ivanka, the way she gets paid this way, that way, and the way they um, appraise value for one taxing circumstance and another for the banks— I don't know how sure. much of you of this you've digested, John McGuire, but it would be great to hear your perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that in relation to like the statement you made that I'm not paying tax because I'm smart. I mean, although there's certainly legitimate loopholes to continuously work within those loopholes is is very hard, if not impossible. And at some point, you or your spouse has income, and you're going to have income tax and and or self-employment tax, et cetera. So, you know, my initial reaction is something has to be, you know, incorrect at some point in time, right? I mean, it may not be every single year, but it doesn't seem right from a taxation perspective to have that type of wealth and apparently pay no tax, right? Correct. And it doesn't seem that there's any way that you can legitimately cut a check straight from the Trump organization to the uh, parochial school, private school of your uh, accountant's uh, grandchild. You know what I'm saying? It's certainly they, these are easy. Uh, right. I would think uh, to say, come on, it's a scheme to defraud everybody who really pays taxes and uses state and city services. They're not paying sure. what they owe. Sure. I mean, they're they're taxable fringe benefits that they're probably using as deductions to not only claim income, but offset other income. So I, I would agree. Right. It's quite, he, yes, it, something's wrong. He got a car. Now, a lot of people get company cars, but I don't know what the tax rules are on stuff like that, but I bet you do. If, if my law firm bought me a company car, uh, would I have to get taxed on that? Well, somewhat depend upon, you know, the use. I mean, there's certain fringe benefits that are excluded, um, you know, from being taxable. One of those being, yeah, you can have transportation or commuting benefits, right? Um, and again, it's it's kind of the, that fine line, but you've got, you know, certain type of accident health benefits and other types of awards or diminished benefits, certain types of uh you know, stock options or saying, you know, employer provided cell phone. And those would be legitimate, you know, benefits. But to provide someone with a car at some point for personal use, you've probably crossed that line. And now you have a taxable fringe benefit, right? So it's always facts and circumstances based, you know, what, what is that person doing? What capacity are they acting in for the benefit of, of the business, right? Um, I mean, you give me a work truck that I drive around to construction sites all day and I get to drive it home. Yeah, that, that's probably a you know legitimate fringe benefit, non-taxable. But if I'm working in a different capacity, 
um, you know, again, say you're the accountant and you give me a vehicle to drive to and from work, but I drive it everywhere on vacation and so forth. We may have crossed that line. So I don't know if that distinction or example was good, but again, it's always facts and circumstances. And usually logic kind of leads to to what the correct treatment. I'm hearing wiggle room. I'm hearing discretion. The ref can throw the flag if he wants, but he doesn't have to. And when it comes to the tax laws, all of us are in fear. I think they want it that way so that we will pay our fair share. But isn't it like holding? Couldn't you call a tax crime, a ticky tax tax crime, anytime you want on any play? Well, I mean, I think when you look at someone's return and, and there was, you know, call it a mistake, call it an omission, whatever it was. I mean, you could probably look at any return and attack it to some extent. It would depend upon, you know, what is the item? What's the issue? What was the deduction or omission of income? Right. Right. Um, and, and like I said, sometimes something seems much more of a, you know, non-willful mistake or it was a position taken that it was reasonable, but the IRS may not agree with you. And that's also why you've got the tax and tax court, federal court to make that decision. So some things are, you know, much more obvious when they're they're right or much more obvious when they're wrong, if that makes sense. Um, you know, again, I think you're looking at all circumstances and, and what was the position or omission, what was the deduction, etc. I think it's like when I was a prosecutor back in my very early days prosecuting DUIs, and we all think, oh, my God, there, but for the grace of God, go I. But not really. When you ride around and when you take the tests, you realize these people are really very intoxicated, much more mm-hmm. you know, than I thought. Is that the, the way you see it in the tax law world? Uh, they're not really pulling over people for minor tax things. They have to see a pattern or something really obviously wrong. Am I? Yeah, I would agree. When it goes from kind of a, you know a civil issue to that criminal issue, there's a, a big difference in my opinion. I mean, a lot of items, you know, we see audits where someone omitted some income or pushed deductions, and you know, it does. Some of them start to get to a point where you're thinking that this is pretty blatant and bad, but the the government still doesn't push it from that civil arena to the, the, the criminal. Um, and when you see it go to that criminal level is generally when, yes, it's, it was obvious. It's very, you know, it was willful. There was intent behind this. You know, you omitted large amounts of income. You took improper positions across the board on numerous deductions and other items. Um, or, you know, you flat out just didn't file a return or when you did file a return and you owed, you know, you, you transferred assets or you, you concealed assets. Right. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of ticky tack things where it's probably not worth their time to pursue it. They've got very harsh penalties, accuracy related penalties, failure to file, failure to pay penalty and interest that, you know, someone that messes up and gets caught, they're going to you know pay with their pound of flesh. But to go to that next level, yes, that's when you see it like this was blatant and it's wrong. And you feel that, uh, you know, your normal everyday taxpayer that is paying their taxes would probably look at this person and agree that that it, it should go to that level. Right. Correct. It just uh, I think it worries a lot of people. But in my mind, it's patriotic to pay taxes. Right. The more you make, the more you're making for Uncle Sam. 
and Uncle Sam is partners with all of us. And in this politically fractured time, I'd still like to think that it's patriotic duty to pay taxes. That's why um, I don't mind that much. How about you? No, I agree. I mean, I think it's kind of, it's it's a luxury, I think, when you're able to, you know, make and earn income and still have the ability, you know, to, to pay tax. Um, I think to some extent, when you do look at the amount of tax that we we do pay versus some of the benefits we get, um, I, I may have a question or an issue there. Right. I think, you know, a lot of people may. I mean, there's a lot of countries in the world that pay very high taxes and those people are taken care of. And not that I don't feel our government takes care of us, but I, I don't see it to the same extent, um, you know, when, when I have looked at, at other countries. And of course, again, you can't compare America to every country. It's probably one of, because of the freedoms we are afforded, we've got issues that a lot of countries don't have. So I, I would never want to badmouth um, our our government on that. But sometimes I do feel what we pay in relation to what we get back is not quite in line with, with what you'd hope. <clears throat> I don't know what I'm getting out of the U.S. tax court. I've never been there, never had a desire to go there. But you guys have a separate court system. And how do those guys get appointed? Are those presidential... Uh, appointments, lifetime positions, or something uh, supervised by the federal judges. Right. So yeah, it's once you're once you're appointed, it's it's a lifetime appointment, and the court is you know it's a traveling court. Okay. And so, well, technically, I think it's a 15 year term, but generally, most of the time, you know that that lasts for everyone. Okay. Um, and the uh let's say they changed how they were appointed i'm just wondering if it's political there you know sometimes the first thing we look up is is this guy a republican or a democrat i I would hope that taxes is a little more apolitical i hope you mean the overall? Yeah, the, the, the climate of the courts. Do you say, oh, geez, I got this tax court judge, and this guy's nutty. He always sides with government, or he always sides with the taxpayer. I don't know. Do get, judges get that kind of reputation? Yeah, I think you you, ha- you know what what judges, you know, what their issues or what they favor or, or don't. Um you know, and I, I think for the most part, they've, they're pretty good at being, you know, impartial. I don't I, I would say when in doubt, I think a lot of them show leniency towards, you know, the, the citizen, the taxpayer. Right. right? Um, you know, not that they help give the house away, but I think their understanding in terms of a complex tax code. And it's a also relates to financial issues. Um, and, and we have the perfect illustration. George mm-hmm. M. Cohan, the Cohan rule. And I have to tell you that you being named John McGuire, I'm going to take a guess that you're an Irish guy. Yeah, Scotch-Irish. <laughs> All right, Scotch-Irish. And somehow, even though I'm not Scotch in the least, my parents decided to name me Craig. Craig. I don't know where that comes from. Being a Jewish guy, why Jewish parents came up with Craig that's okay, but my last name is Silverman, and my kids, you have two kids, I have two kids, 
when my kids were about your kids' age, right, five and seven, uh, one of them said to me, he said, Dad, what's a Jewish last name? And I said, well, well, Silverman, that's for one. And then I probably said Cohen, Hayton, Schwartz, and a bunch of others that you're not going to think of. Do you get questions like that from your five- and seven-year-old, like, Dad, what's an Irish name? Not yet, not yet, but I'm sure. Well, 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 in practice, what would you say? McGuire, right? Yeah, I'd say that from the the genealogy we pulled, yeah, Scotch and Scotch Irish is what it seems to be. That that mixed stuff, you don't see a lot of Jewish guys with Mick in their name, right? I mean, I haven't. And, or, oh, something. So there are some tip offs if my kid. Anyway, I'm thinking, like everybody, wow, there's a lot of Jewish people in show business, and I'm thinking about the 4th of July, Yankee Doodle Dandy, George M. Cohan. I'm sure he's a Jewish guy, but you know what he was? He was an Irish guy. (laughs) Cohan, yeah, it's not. And then he married a woman named Ethel Levy, L-E-V-E-Y, and you think Cohan Levy wedding, that's got to be attended by a rabbi, but she wasn't Jewish either, and she ended up suing him after he made the Yankee Doodle Dandy, sued him and Warner Brothers, saying, hey, you wrote me out of the movie. You told this Mm -hmm. guy's life story, and she lost on that one. But then George M. Cohan, he had a famous tax case named after him. By the way, he was quite a guy. He toured with his family growing up. They were called the Four Cohans. They were vaudevillians. And uh, I learned a lot about him. And even though in Yankee Doodle Dandy, they sing born on the 4th of July, George M. Cohan, born on the 3rd of July. And the movie is all about him as portrayed by James Cagney, who won a Best Actor Oscar uh, for that performance. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle do or die. A real live nephew of my Uncle Sam. Born on the 4th of July. I've got a Yankee Doodle sweetheart. She's my Yankee Doodle joy. Yankee Doodle came to London just to ride the ponies. I am that Yankee Doodle boy. He's a Yankee Doodle man. He's a Yankee Doodle do or die. So I'm going to shut up and let you talk about George M. Cohan and why he has uh, part of your website. Yes. So, well, if if you looked it up, I mean, it's an older, you know, case. I think it was back in the 30s, but it brought about an interesting ruling because the, the court actually allowed the taxpayer to to estimate expenses, right, and not provide full documentation, substantiation on certain deductions. So it's, in many respects, a taxpayer-friendly decision. Um, So I I don't know exactly which which area or or item you want to discuss. No, I just think that's remarkable because George M. Cohen, being a vaudevillian, he was traveling from city to city, Uh and he was not a great bookkeeper, but he said, look, I had to go to Denver, I had to go to Kansas City, I even stopped in Columbus, and of course, I had to have a hotel there, and I don't have all my receipts, but can I give you an estimate? Will that be okay? 
And some tax court said, yeah, you know, in a situation like that, you can, you can just give, an, give us an estimate. We'll call it the Cohen rule. Sure. And so it did. You know, when there's a reasonable basis and then there's a foundation for calculating the estimate, um, the court ruled that, that, yes, you can estimate those expenses. So um, not exactly the decision you would think a court may make, but a very favorable one. Right. So all is not lost when you lose the paperwork. I like that kind of thing because I'm not the best with paperwork. But have you ever thought about those days and just when the IRS first got formulated? Um, throughout history, there's been a lot of battles around tax collecting. Uh, your field can lead to, I mean, it, it's a fundamental part of government and you got to have rules or society won't work. Am I right? Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And I mean, if you're going to have a government, there needs to be a means by which to pay and operate the government, right? Right. And so we can pay for things like wars. Can I just say something else about Yankee Doodle Dandy that I did not know? And I haven't watched it in a while, but James Cagney, he plays George M. Cohan, and it starts with him meeting with Franklin Roosevelt. It's 1942, and how they're going to kick ass. And Roosevelt is portrayed as a guy who can dance along with Jimmy Cagney, but uh, everybody was really unaware that he could barely stand up. He was crippled, and and that was hidden from the public. The other thing about Yankee Doodle Dandy is that— uh, Right after the making of it, he died, George M. Cohen, of cancer. Of course, Jimmy Cagney went on to a long career starring in a bunch of other things. But this is how far back George M. Cohen goes, speaking of wars, World War II. World War One. do you remember what the big song was for that war? You're a young guy, John McGuire, but I can remember the one song that comes from that war. What was that? Over there? Not sure. I'm over not sure there, familiar, over there. Send the word, send the word over there. Anyway, it was about the Yanks are coming. The Yanks are coming. Over there, over there. Send the word, send the word over there. That the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming. The drums drum coming everywhere. So prepare, say a prayer. Send the word, send the word to beware. We'll be over, we're coming over and we won't come back till it's over over there was written by George M. Cohan for World War I. So what a uh -huh. career he had, spanning from uh, World War I all the way to World War II. And he was a Yankee Doodle Dandy. How do you intend to celebrate the 4th of July 
tell us about your fine family and how you like parenthood. Is it better to be a, a ski bum in Vail, or is it better to be a, a dad, a husband, and a responsible attorney with a law firm to run? <laughs> I'd say it's uh, much better to be a be a father, even though some days you feel like you're going to pull your hair out, right? Um, no, it's it's extremely challenging. It's been very fun, though. And as everyone tells you, and you've probably experienced, it goes incredibly fast. I feel like I turned around and they're five and seven years old. Um, as you I'm going to be the opposite. I'm going to say it went slow. My <laughs> kid's just now finally thinking about going to college. He turned, he's 18 and graduated this year. We're going to be empty nesters, but I never thought it was going that fast, but I might once I become an empty nester. So anyway, why don't you tell people how they can get a hold of you if they get a notice in the mail? Tell them uh, how they could contact you and your law firm. Sure. I mean, they could always reach out via phone. Uh, Our office line is 720-833-7705. you know, you can look us up. The website is uh, jmtaxlaw.com. So JM for John McGuire and then tax law spelled out T-A-X-L-A-W.com. And that's my email as well, john at jmtaxlaw.com. And if anyone had a question or issue, they could feel free to reach out to us anytime. John, I can't thank you enough. Happy Independence Day. I hope I never need your services, but it's cool to connect with you and now we are friends, and let's go to a ball game together, okay? Yeah, we'll have to hit that next Rockies game together, huh? Perfect. There you go. John McGuire, Craig's Lawyers Lounge. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Now that, my friends, was his show. I hope you liked my guest, Spencer Kubin, came on. And the news about Bill Cosby, Spencer Kubin, he played it just right as an attorney. And get the bonus Epstein coverage. Abe Wagner. You're an amazing dude. Thanks for being on my show. John McGuire, great to make your acquaintance. Good luck to you and your family and your Denver tax law practice. Thank you for listening. Be back next week. Have a good one. Happy 4th of July. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. 
Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.